and we're live. I'm here with Ironcast. Iron, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Caleb. How about yourself? I'm doing great. This is the uh, first podcast of the new year. New background setup. It's gonna be. Uh, it's gonna be fun. New year, new you. That's right. You're gonna be yeah. recording. And I know you've got big plans. You're gonna do like uh, speed up from from one podcast every month or two to like. I think you you're looking at like at least having something out every week, right? Yeah, I'm actually I'm trying to record three episodes this weekend, but only upload like one of them. And I'm gonna try to do more live readings. We do this one. Andrew and I are starting um, how to counter threats by Western civilization from Tom Woods. Mm-hmm. I got some apologetics works I want to start covering. Um, we're gonna do. I'm, trying, I'm gonna try to do Utopia, and I think B- B- Belkov and I are gonna try to live read Scruton's um, uh, Sexual Desire. Fantastic. And so it's and, gonna uh, be, be fun. Bulge and I are also gonna keep doing Maritain's um, Degrees of Knowledge. I've been having fun with this. I want to try and do some more things with him. Oh, yeah. Give, yeah, give you some breaks. So you don't have to be here for every single thing that we do. Thank you. <laughs> and I, I enjoy your guys' episodes. I don't, I don't, I don't always understand them, but I, I try to keep up. I, I can do a decent job keeping up enough. If I, you know, it's one of the few times I can't do times two speed on a podcast. <laughs> I think if we do something else after uh, after degrees of knowledge, it's going to be someone a little a little easier for both of us. <laughs> we can just you know we'll find some Doctor Seuss or something that we can uh, we can spend <laughs> well, an hour and a half on. And I got a second mic, so soon I'm going to start doing in person podcast. I got a. We got a guy from the group set coming in soon. We're going to do uh, some Nations of Antioch and maybe Maritans, um art and scholasticism in person. You're going to have to you're going to have to start flying people out there. Start having start flying Dude, in guests. I would love to fly in guests. There's so many people I know who are, who are in Florida. I'm like, so mess up. Come over. <laughs> we'll get some views and we'll talk about politics for an hour and maybe talk about Napoleon. It'd be great. You mentioned uh, how the Catholic Church created Western civilization. Tom Woods is in like northern Florida, right? He's yeah, not he's, too like, far from he's like. He's only like an hour away. I'm actually gonna DM him later and try to get him on for a, um, a single episode. He, he, he did a he had a great tweet earlier about uh, he made a tweet, he did he did an episode on um, Pope Benedict's death, and someone commented some like super cringe video saying Catholics were pagans, and he just said I would rather worship the sun than be a Protestant. So no, thank you. <laughs> and I'm like I, I need I need to have words to just do a whole Catholic episode because I think. When he was kind of doing his podcast and stuff, it wasn't a lot of like you really couldn't hate on Protestants, you know. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you can kind of say a lot more. Like, I mean, at least in our circles, you could say a lot more stuff about you know Protestants without really burning bridges. And so <laughs> I would love to get him on to kind of do because he's a he's, he's a historian. You know who's got great. You know he has great things to say about Martin Luther. <laughs> it would be know? fantastic. And so I'm try to get him on. Relevant for our uh, our topic today, all the all the best libertarian thinkers end up being Catholic for whatever reason. So yes. <laughs> Woods, Rockwell, Laden. Then it's, I gotta say, every time I, I, I prefer to cast, when it comes to politics, because some of the politics involves human nature, if it's not from a Catholic guy, I'm very hesitant to like, take it on its word because they don't, they often don't account for like man's fallen nature. But mm-hmm. Laden does account for that in a lot of his stuff. Like he does account for like your man's fallen nature, which I think makes him a much more valuable sinker than someone who might be, might have more works that might cover more topics, but doesn't account for that, you know? Absolutely. Let me set a screen and we'll hop into it. But actually, before we um, hop into it, oh, what's this set screen button again? I haven't been, I haven't been, into, I haven't been using streaming on it forever. I forgot where all the buttons were. I, I had to host one time and I panicked when I was with Bulge because like I have no idea how to do anything. I didn't know how to do intro. I didn't know how to share screens. We need your, <laughs> uh, we need your technical prowess if nothing else. Mm. So, Eric von Kudutladen, Kudutladen, how do you say his name? Is was a 20th century. Um, humanities professor, 
I think he married a duchess. Um, he is a Austrian kind of the, like philosophy, literature, economics. He kind of covers a wide breadth of topics, and he really read it when you we 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 we, we, we covered a monarchy and war, and it was a historical point after historical point. And this one, he kind of gets more philosophical. He he really had a wide breadth of knowledge. He spoke Japanese in like the nineteen you know forties. <laughs> Which he was is, he was very much a renaissance man like i mean sort yes. of the one of the last of an era of just these very classically educated brilliant austrian thinkers yeah it's something about those 20th century thinkers man especially from austria like mises i was reading his book syrian history he has like entire chapters on Thomism's natural law it's you know it's, the the breadth of knowledge that was just sort of commonplace among the i mean certainly like you know these are these are elite intellectuals but like, you know, if you had a PhD, like, of course you've read everyone ever. And that, <laughs> that hasn't been the case for several generations. And it, it much to the detriment of, of modern intellectuals where they don't actually know anything. Oh, yeah. No, it's been a, it's a weird statement. Like, you mean, you, modern intellectuals are like, oh, it's not my field, so I can't talk about it. And he's just like, here's why Thomas Aquinas and natural law is actually wrong. And I'm like, you're an economist, dude. You're wrong on this topic, but at least you're covering it, you know. <laughs> like, I, I respect the fact that you know it's not your field, but you're still going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But um, so it's gonna read the preface, and then we're gonna read like the first chapter. Kind of, it's kind of, it's not gonna be a long episode because it's a big book. I'll probably cut chapters up later. Uh, I'll read, I'll read the first, and then if you ever want, if you, if you have anything you want to say, just kind of jump in and comment, and we'll go from there. Sure. I'm just before we get into the text, I do want to sort of mention. I think this was at least the version I was looking at was dated 1952 or something like that. Um, and I think a lot of the things that will, I don't know if we'll get into them too much tonight, but um. As he starts getting into so it's liberty liberty or equality the challenge of our time is the full title and i think really sort of and some of these ideas are very old but very much gets ahead of somebody like hoppe who's writing you know 40 50 years later in terms of okay what's the 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 tendencies of democracy and what it can actually do so it's a, really a man ahead of his time in a lot of ways as far as i think what you call him the classical liberal of the alt-right yeah or the far right yeah, now this is actually, I think this was a book that um, Curtis Yarvin read, A Democracy to God to Fair and Realized Anarchy Couldn't Work. And he read this book, and that's kind of what got him out of libertarianism was Lydin and Carlyle, where the two guys that kind of took him out of libertarianism. So it's, it's influenced a lot of, I mean, even the term, like um, Lydin called himself an arts liberal of the extreme right. Uh, Nick Land called himself that one time. So he's, he's, huh. he's very influential in like the, you know, the main thinkers of the dark enlightenment. So it's, Someone who's like been that influential and not really covered in depths. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be a it's be a lot of fun. Preface: Not without inner emotion and certain feelings of hesitancy, am I offering these pages to the English speaking public? The emotion is due to the fact that I lived for over ten years on the hospitable soil of the United States of America, the native land of my second sire, which to me is my second home. The hesitancy, on the other hand, is a result from the grim foreboding that this volume would be the cause of several misunderstandings and a number of a number of cases of downright resentment. Yet, as Leon Bloy, as soon as I say his name has insisted it is a it is later than we think and the time for flattery, self-delusion, cheap optimism is over. Um, there we go. Um, an involved situation, a complicated problem, a complex issue cannot be dealt with within a few pages or in a simple way. This task is text this mental prowess and the physical energies of more than one person. You also had to be assisted with an editor with a greater mastery of the English language than his own. Of course, as far as material, the facts and the views are con- 
concerned. The facts and the views are concerned. These are entirely the author's responsibility. The reader might uh, conceivably ask himself why this book was written and published. Hold on. Um, I lost my spot again. Before we get into it, I'm going to zoom in a bit to make it easier. Okay. Um, sorry, the first live reading is going to be a little bit of bugs to work out before we get in the slide. Um, another okay, is, um, the reader might conceivably ask himself why this book was written and published in this particular situation and at this particular time. Another edition, a German translation, will be published soon in Switzerland. But the author in Austria, who will never forget his American decade and his years in Britain, believes that directly... As well as indirectly, he has dealt with the problems which are not like, which not only lie at the core of this particular internal crisis, which darkens the horizons of the Occident. Do you know that word? Uh, Occident, I think, is the. I think it's how it's pronounced. I don't think I've ever heard it said. Only read, but it's, it's yeah. the West essentially. Okay, I've never seen that word before. Um, Occident's future, but also the very substance of the great and fatal misunderstanding between the, con the continent. And the English-speaking nations, the catastrophic. Why well, want to scroll down? The catastrophic lack of comprehension of the rather opaque word east of the um, Cal Calais. I think it's Calais, French city. I think I'm, my my French pronunciation is always terrible. I think it's Calais. Calais, aggravated by confusion about technical terms, is largely responsible to the great disappointment America and Britain have also suffered after each. Major war won for their ideas. Each triumph for democracy has ended on the continent with a frightening setback for the cause of liberty. The years 1917, 1918, 1922, 1933, and 1938 were insane defeats for the cause of freedom. Second World War resulted in military victory and political defeat. <laughs> That's a great, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to highlight that because I think that that sums up so much of... Um, a lot of the history, a lot of a lot of modernity, these sort of these sort of pyrrhic victories, where the the goal you're fighting in the name of, despite the, the victory on the battlefield, ends up ends up losing pretty utterly. Like the 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 slogans of of really both world wars um, for the winning side were not the were not the slogans that carried the day, <laughs> and uh, much to our detriment, as he gets into in some detail. Absolutely. In order to help the Englishmen and the Americans to distinguish more clearly between the forces of light and forces of darkness, the material for this book has been collected, arranged, and annotated. It is our fervent hope that we have not altogether failed in this endeavor. Kudot Lodin lands Tyrol, June 28, 1951. I, was, I looked into it briefly. So he's writing from Lanz in, in Tyrol, and this is in um, uh, outside Innsbruck in Western Austria. And it's, I think, I think I've, if I haven't been in Lanz, I've been very close to it, but it's literally the most picturesque, beautiful Alpine um, part of the world you can imagine. Like Innsbruck is like at the foot of, of the, of the, or in the sort of middle of the Austrian Alps. And Lanz, I think even now has a population of like 300 people. Wow. So you can just imagine him just like, you know, chilling out in the, in the, you know, next to the, the probably cow fields next to giant mountains springing up and it's just. Yeah, just to try and paint a picture a little bit of it, because Tyrol is, is for my for my money some of the most beautiful land in the entire world. And that's um, an, you said that was in Austria. Yeah, yeah. So and Tyrol is is uh, South Tyrol is actually now Italy. That's one of those places after World War One that Italians were like, yeah, of course this has always been Italian and not Austrian, and so everyone still speaks German there like to this day in, in South <laughs> Tyrol, but very Austrian. Um, yeah, has, has an American who's never left America. The Europe, Europe's um, 
where the lines are drawn on the map and what language people speak and what area it's always been odd to me. <laughs> the, the, the one time the, situation. Zootiol is or South Tyrol is the like the strangest experience in the world because it's, again you're up in the mountains anyways. So there's like the border there was, has always been ill defined just because you know you didn't have like you know no no one's really trying to walk across the border when you're at you know six thousand feet or whatever up. <laughs> but literally like you you you're now in Italy. Some of the official signage, like street signs and stuff, some of it changes into Italian. But for the most part, it's still all in German. Everyone speaks German. <laughs> the food is all German. It's, yeah. It's odd. It's, it, but yeah, no, absolutely. But this, this, is where, this is where he's writing in the, in the 50s, is out in the, in the really middle of nowhere Alps in, uh, hmm. in Austria. It sounds, sounds beautiful because, I, I mean, I was listening to um, Last Night of Liberalism from um, – Huzman on you know biography of Mises, mm-hmm. and the way he describes like apparently the amount of like coffee shops and pubs and and all the pubs and coffee shops have magazines over for like science and philosophy magazines. I'm like, man, imagine being in Austria in that time period, you know, <laughs> like before, like right before World War One kind of thing, when everyone was super small, educated, and there were pubs and coffee shops, magazines, people were reading these magazines and just kind of engaging in these kind of and then intellectual conversations in public with strangers. It's insane. Like it's sort of a forgotten um, period of intellectual history because everyone, you know, if you go back far enough, all these other sort of centers were the were the sort of center of the of of um, of intellectual growth in Europe. You know, Paris has its heyday, mm-hmm. um, Rome certainly, Florence, all these other places. Going into the 20th century, like everything was happening in Vienna. There's a reason it's called the Austrian School of History. There was a room where Austro-Thomism is. That's where just they, mm-hmm. they all were. Um, yeah. I was seeing a thing today that like all these huge political figures and Freud and Trotsky and like, they were all within like three square blocks of one another in Vienna in the, in the 19 teens, just everything intellectual was happening in Austria. And then World War one happens and they're all dis- displaced or dead within yeah. you know, four years. If you want to hear about how bad World War one was, uh, I recommend you go back and listen to our live readings of Laden's monarchy and war. <laughs> he covers that well, a little self plug there and another Laden plug. Two for two, baby. Let's go. Absolutely. You want me to start into chapter one? Go right ahead. Sure. Okay. Uh, chapter one, definitions and basic principles. This book is an essay in the narrowest sense of the term, an effort to throw some light on certain phases and aspects of the century-old struggle between the principles of freedom and those of equality, between the ideologies of liberalism and of democracy, in their classic sense, of course. It is obvious that this study cannot be exhaustive, Nevertheless, the subjects of our analysis have not been chosen at random, but have been selected for special reasons. Before divining our terms, we think it important to show our hand and to declare our philosophical baggage. It is obvious that any writer trying to analyze political or sociological phenomena critically and uh, methodically will be motivated by a more or less coherent system of philosophy. I love that point, by the way. I, I really like when I first read this, I wasn't really impressed with the fact that he like declares his philosophical baggage. When so many books nowadays, like you read like things like Suicide of the West by Burnham, you don't really know what he thinks. You know, you know what he thinks through the book, but you don't know his like his starting points, you know. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate it when he also or sinker decides to declare their baggage. So you kind of know when they like he's a teacher, he says he's a Thomist. So I know when he uses certain words, I know what he kind of means by that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's uh I was Hopper would say he's a Kantian because it would make it easier for me to understand him sometimes. Right. Um it's and it's, it's a point that sort of has come back in recent years is we there there was the I think this fiction for the longest time that you could have these kinds of studies and have the the um person mm-hmm. doing them be philosophically or politically neutral as they could try and do it in a neutral approach. And 
one, I don't think it works. And two, it ends up being dishonest a lot of the time. So the fact that he's able to yeah. just like, yep, I'm Catholic. I'm a Thomist. Here's what Thomism is. Here's what it does. This is the perspective I'm going to have. It's, it's, it, makes, it makes it, 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 he is put, like she said, she's show, he's showing his hand. He's putting everything on the table yes. and saying, this is what you're going to get. And I, I love, we'll, we'll see in a minute, but I love his description of Thomism. And I really, I, 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 I mean, when I did, um, uh, year zero was Tommy Salmons. I basically quoted his. From my, I had to explain what Thomism was to the guy, and I just I quoted um, Laden here because he he has a great point about how what Thomism is, and we'll get to that in a minute when you continue reading. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, and, and another quick self plug was me and Bulga mm-hmm. have been doing, like I said, Maritain's uh, degrees of knowledge. Just goes into some of the details of what Thomism is, and it's it mm-hmm. it, it it's the philosophy, like Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy, is just is the way is the way to think about the world. As far as I mean, yes. I'm, I'm very much showing my hand. That's but there, there is a clarity to it that's that's Absolutely. fantastic. Was um was Mariton considered a neo-Thomist or a regular Thomist? Because I've seen some people see Frederick as a neo-Thomist, but by able I read people who are like like Kreef calls him a Thomist and Bissabayan called him a Thomist. But I've seen some people who don't really like him call him a neo-Thomist. I don't really know what neo-Thomism is. Yeah, so I haven't read a lot of like of of people that are really identified as neo-Thomists. I mean, it, it is the sort of people that would call themselves Thomists in the 20th century. <laughs> My impression of Mariton is he's very much a classical Thomist. Neo-Thomists, I think, sort of have, have either either not changed things, but they've, they've tried to modernize in ways that not all Thomists would agree with. So I, I think I think Maritain, I don't know if he would have described himself that way, but from everything I've read, he's very much a Thomist and not there, there's not a lot of neo to his Thomism. Like it is it is straight out of the Summa for the most part. Yeah. Where are we at? Uh, uh, da, 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 da. Um, okay, since the present author is, is a Catholic, his philosophy has an intimate relationship with the theology of his church, a relationship which can be best can best be defined as coordination. The principle that philosophy is the handmaid of theology has for him only a personal but not an intellectual meaning. Although his philosophy is predominantly Thomistic, he is also deeply influenced by a theistic existentialism and by certain cognitions of the phenomenological school. The Catholic re- reader who is curious as to the reasons which prompt him to deviate from neo-Thomism today so strongly dominating the philosophical scene in Catholic North America is invited to peruse the note on the subject on pages 146 to 164 to 167. And I will say that he mentions neo-Thomism. I, I, I think whatever movement it was really sort of petered out as in the, it was existed in the 20th century and kind of died. Um, again, mostly I think it was in, it was a, it was an American phenomenon in Catholicism mm-hmm. and I think tried to blend some, some American sensibility into, into Thomism. Um, I, I don't know if there's a lot of that tradition that's alive today. I think most of the, if there's been much of a Thomistic revival, don't know what phase it was, would, how do we refer to himself? But I think most of the, the sort of modern Thomists are very much Thomists and, and yeah. don't have a lot of connection to the neo-Thomistic. I've heard him describe as a, as a uh, analytical Thomist. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only thing I've heard him, like, not, when people see the Thomist, I always say like analytical Thomism. I don't really see much of a distinction between analytical, whatever that it means. And mm-hmm. when I read Thomas Aquinas, you know? Sure. And it might just be to distinguish it from neo-Thomism. Yeah. Uh, the non-Catholic reader will not, we hope, be discouraged by the admission just made. We want to assure him that Thomism, the basis of our philosophy, is not a strange esoteric creed full of mysterious illusions. It is, on the contrary, a philosophy characterized by the utmost respect for human reason and one which strives towards objective reality. It is a philosophy of horse sense with no patience for solipsism, the denial of sensory a, per, uh, a perception and the rejection of simple law of the simple laws of logic. Its realism will insist that if statement A is correct and statement B contradicts A, the latter must be considered to be false. 
There is nothing magical or mysterious with the tenets of Thomism insofar as they underlie the philosophy of these pages. They represent common sense. Great way to say, he describes Thomism really well in like, a, like a, less than a paragraph. It's kind of like, it's common sense. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that Maritain takes a, a chapter of his very dense book to go over what he calls critical realism, which is sort of his his version, not version, his application of Thomism to epistemology. And it's it's 70 dense pages, as as the your viewers will see, hopefully in a couple of weeks here when, when Bulge and I get around to it. It is it, but then you can't say much more clearly than than uh, is done here. Is it really is it's about it's it's realism, it's about objective reality, and it's what you derive from it. Uh, there's a this might have also been Meriton, I'm not sure, but I know at some one, some point someone was talking about Thomism and says very clearly that, that St. Thomas would never have considered himself a Thomist. He would not have considered what he was doing realism, right? Is you only sort of make these realizations like when when you come up with some other philosophy or metaphysics that's just clearly wrong <laughs> to differentiate. You say, okay, no, we're not doing that. We're doing realism. But for for Saint Thomas, it was very much yeah, I'm 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 thinking. I'm thinking about the world. I'm doing proper philosophy. There there are no axioms. There is no like, well, this is my worldview. It's like no, this is this is what common sense tells us and what we can derive from it through reason. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a lot of modern philosophers that, well, if we consider, you know, X axiom to be true, or if we have, if we take this stance and there, it becomes very subjective, Thomism yeah. is very much about objective wow. reality. This is the things we know to be true. If St. Thomas said it and it was based on, on logic, it is true because it's, it's based on objective reality. Yeah. They want to see a good example of that. Um, <clears throat> EWTN had a great little series called Saints vs. Scoundrels, where it would have actors and costumes playing different characters. And they did one of St. Thomas and Rene Descartes. And Descartes opens this bit about, you know, we can't know if we're like ever awake. And before we give you better the sentence, Thomas smacks his fist on the table and goes, But what about the senses? <laughs> we we lot begins with the senses. <laughs> and this kind of like cuts them off right there in the beginning. It doesn't mean let go. It's a very uh that's what was entertaining. So, did they have Flannery O'Connor pull a gun and try to suit Ayn Rand? Probably deserved like, it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Ayn Rand would have been a would have been a good Catholic if she had if she'd had Flannery O'Connor to shoot her every moment of her life. Yeah. Like we, we still need to, we need to do um, Good Man is Hard to Find at some point. We need we to do, do a, or we, or we need to do sort of a book review of Flannery O'Connor regardless. Okay, we're, yeah. we're getting in the weeds. Um, <laughs> sorry for all the tangents. Let's see. Okay. Yeah. At the same time, we are deeply concerned about the psychological reactions of man, either as a person or as an individual lost in a crowd, and about myths and superstitions. Yet we will naturally subordinate psychology to philosophy and feelings, emotions, and affections to objective reality without forgetting the existence of the former. Love that line. <laughs> That's very good. It's very good. <laughs> and, I think when we, um, and he gets into it a little bit more later. I don't want to step on, on our own toes too much. But there's the... It is something that's very easy to forget is that there is that, you know, man is is not perfectly rational. He will make mistakes. He will have errors in judgment. He will do and, and you know, not um, not all those things are, are, are evil, morally evil. Sometimes you can just be wrong. Sometimes you can be motivated by by psychology or not not get things properly, yeah. especially he talks about, you know, the, the psychological reactions of an individual lost in the crowd. Right. The, the madness of crowds is a real thing. And it's not mm -hmm. it is not because of poor philosophy that these things can happen. Yeah. When we talk about freedom and equality, we must realize that we are faced here for all practical, practical purposes by relative, not by absolute terms, by trends and tendencies rather than by unalloyed abstractions. 
Freedom in this study means the greatest amount of self-determination, which in a given situation is feasible, reasonable, and possible. As a means to safeguarding man's happiness and protect, protecting his personality, it is an intermediary end and thus forms part of the common good. It is obvious that under these circumstances, it cannot be brutally sacrificed to the demands of absolute efficiency, nor to efforts towards a maximum of material welfare. Man does not live by bread alone. Here, as in some other basic matters, most readers will probably admit that they see with us eye to eye because, although not belonging to the church, they are nevertheless adherents and beneficiaries of the Hebrew-Greek tr Christian tradition, which is something approaching a common denominator. <laughs> and I'll say, like, so th this chapter was, what was it called? Definitions and Basic Principles. I do like that he takes some time and says, okay, here's, there's some terms that especially, and I think it's gotten worse since he's writing, are very loaded with a lot of meaning that is not properly, doesn't properly belong to them. And yeah. wants to take the time and the effort to say, okay, when I say freedom, this is what I mean. When I say equality, this is what I mean. When I say democracy, this is what I mean. Yes. Um, because there is so much um, obfuscation and again, it, it's it's pressing in a lot of ways because it's so much worse now than it was even then. But it was it was happening then already. Is you know, this, and I, I hate to use the word Orwellian, but Orwellian doublespeak that you've got a word that you say, okay, I'm meaning this, but I'm really meaning this, and this, yeah. and these the sort of Mott and Bailey's that can come from it. Um, and he is, and and I, I appreciate that he's going back to very classical definitions. Yeah, like it may be a boomer point, but the Democrats and the Republicans both talk about freedom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it's like what, what you both both of you mean wildly different things, and both of you are kind of wrong. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. I'm I'm really appreciative of him. Like again, Lodin is incredible, and he, it might be one of the best of like the classical trained um, thinkers. You know, when it comes to, like the classically trained people who went to school in the 20th century and kind of knew a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Especially being a human, being a guy who was professor of humanities. You know, humanities already kind of covers a little bit of everything. Sure. So to be the guy who knows a little bit of everything, teaches a little bit of everything, in a time when everyone knew everything, you had to be really good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he clearly, he shows it here when he's talking about Thomism, Christian existentialism, phenomenology, and he does politics. I mean, he is just wide range of knowledge. Absolutely. I also really like the, the point that he makes here. He says, um, as a means to safeguarding man's happiness and protecting his personality is an intermediary end. And I think this is a very, what I, what I would call sort of Catholic libertarian point, is mm -hmm. that it, what you'll what you'll sort of hear a lot in in from a sort of political science perspective from libertarians or from libertarian adjacent people is that freedom is the goal. It's like, okay, how do we get the most freedom? And and yeah. he here recognizes very properly that that freedom is an intermediary end. Freedom is freedom. You use freedom to safeguard happiness and protect personality. It is not it is not a final end. Right? Yeah. We have a, we have a greater final end in the common good and knowledge of God and our own you know, trying to protect ourselves morally. That yeah. freedom is a means to that end. That it is intermediary and it is not the end all be all. Um, yes, which is yes. which is a, a point that I think is is missed very often or ignored or disagreed with by a, by a lot of libertarian um, kind of thinkers. Yeah, they they, they they view liberty as the end goal and not as the means to an end. Right. You know, it's like I remember I, like you you read some anarchist philosophers like um like Woods Woods and Rockwell and stuff. They talk about how you need liberty to begin to see these greater goods. And you read some people like some 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 Rothbard works, people like Ace, and they think liberty is the goal. You know, liberty, liberty like this is like Matt Erickson, King Perry had a great point, like liberty to do what? You know, or they, no one really answered this question. And I'm like, that's a good question, you know. Mm -hmm.
It's, and of course, the, the the answer would be the liberty to do good, like yes. and, you know, and, to, and liberty to seek uh, capital G good. Yes, yes. Liberty, it's, liberty itself is not a good. Liberty is a, a, maybe the best way to achieve said goods. You know, it might mm-hmm. be other ways. And he has a point later where he says, "Um, the liberal would uh, whatever, the liberal picks whatever achieves the most freedom for good." And that means a, a, a military dictatorship, or if that means a uh, open democracy, or it means anarchy. Whatever, right. whatever points to that good. That's what the guy with liberals to pick. And I was like, that's a good, that's a good kind of Machiavellian way to. to you, have, you have your goal, and you have your Machiavellian way of like picking what's what's best for that scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. When we speak about equality, we do not refer to equity, which is justice. Even so, Christian equality is not something mechanical, but merely subje- uh, subjection under the same law. In other words, isonomy. Yet to the Christian, two newly born babes are spiritually equal, but their physical and intellectual qualities, the latter, of course, in potency, are from the moment of conception unequal. We shall not, we shall not go into the psychological reasons for the egalitarian and identitarian tendencies of our age, which we have dealt with elsewhere. It suffices to say that the artificial establishment of equality is as little compatible with liberty as the enforcement of unjust laws of discrimination. It is obviously just to discriminate within limits between the innocent and the criminal, the adult and the infant, the combatant and the civilian, and so on. Whereas greed, pride, and arrogance are at the base of unjust discrimination, the driving motor of the egalitarian and identitarian trends is envy, jealousy, and fear. Nature i.e. the absence of human intervention. I love anything that. Again, another example of what he does it. He puts the, he says the word of Jason Marks, parentheses, description of it. Because, I mean, who was it? Um, Like when Paulia described nature, it was um, – I have to, have to put – I can't remember. I was reading it the other week, and the way he was describing nature was really, like, upsetting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some people – so many people just describe nature. They, they describe it as um, – what is ever – I put this um, – not what is natural, like the absence of human intervention, but in whatever is the. Uh, I can't. I can't. I, I'm trying to remember it, but I cannot remember the exact voice he, he argued it. Sure. But, and okay, it's another, I'll put it in the description. I remember it later. Sure. And it's another one of those words that gets very different meanings depending on who says it. Like if you're if you were Rousseau talking about nature, you mean something very very different. You know, you can yeah. have it. You can have you can have man in a state of nature versus you know civilized man or whatever. Um, you know, here he's talking about things that are completely absent human intervention. In the metaphysical, in the metaphysical sense, you can be talking about natural things versus supernatural things. In which case, you know, all human activity is natural, um, in so much as it's not supernatural. So it's it's yeah, you, you you appreciate that he's saying exactly what he means, especially with these words that get confused a lot. Yeah. It is a little regrettable when he, he talks about equity at the beginning of this paragraph and says it refers to justice. And equity is a word that has been so completely co-opted and taken over and perverted to its meaning, having nothing to do with what it originally was. Yeah. If you, if he was if he was writing now, he would have to have a whole paragraph saying what he means by equity and and with footnotes about how whatever the like because I don't think literally the word equity is never used in the proper sense of being justice. Yeah. Um, I- I, of course, I justice legit- is also probably not useful. I proper. legitimately have, whenever someone says equity, I legitimately have no idea what that word means anymore. I, I just no clear. It, it gets so, it, half the time I read equity in a sentence, I, say, I always think they meant to say equality. <laughs> I have no, I have no word basis for how anyone defines that word anymore. So I think so. Um, I've been reading a lot of uh, a lot of James Lindsay's work recently. I know he's not the mm-hmm. the most popular because he is he's. I think less an atheist, more an agnostic, but he's been he's been very good on sort of attacking these a, a lot of the the issues in of the woke, as it were. 
Yeah. Um, I, I should probably dig it up real quick, but I don't want to waste too much time. I think he has a good definition of what equity means in the modern parlance, but it most certainly is not mm-hmm. justice. See, see, I think I would actually pay attention to him if he would just write a dictionary. Oh, he has. So, he absolutely yeah. has. Yeah, it's on, oh, yeah. so on, on his, uh, I'll, I'll do a plug for him. So his website is New Discourses. He's got a dictionary. I think it's trans, called, uh, there's a part of it called Translations from the Wokish, where he li- it's literally a dictionary for woke terms. Respect. Okay, I, I respect that. That's, <laughs> that's actually useful. <laughs> Finally, IDW guy being useful. <laughs> Yeah, no. So I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't care for a lot of the other people in that in that circle, but I think he's no. he's he's very good. Um, all these random plugs for. Okay, anyways, uh, I think I had another point here. Where were we? Oh, um, yeah, I, I, it's very interesting in the because he's writing in the '50s and he's sort of ahead of a lot of the the people that are coming up. But just in these obvious points that you'll hear even now when people are talking about things like, you know, just discrimination. Um, you know, that you know, we do not treat the innocent the same as the criminal. No, we don't treat children the same as we do adults. Um, he, he, and again, then this is this is very Thomistic, I think, and it's, and it's you know, these are, these are just objectively true things. It's very hard to argue against them, unless yeah. you've created a philosophy that isn't based on reality and sort of had tried to work your way backwards to reality from from whatever weird precepts you have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, see, nature, i.e. the absence of human intervention, is anything but egalitarian. If we want to establish a complete plane, we have to blast the mountains away and fill the valleys. Equality thus presupposes the continuous intervention of force, which, as a principle, is opposed to freedom. Liberty and equality are, in essence, contradictory. I do think this, this is about the closest he gets to, to any kind of modern libertarian, um, not verbiage, sloganing. Is it, and it's, and it's, I think it's, it's a good point, but he, and he makes it well, but, that, but very clearly connects that, you know, equality is necessarily the result of, of intervention. Yeah. Okay. Of all political labels, none have been more frequently misused than the terms liberal and democratic. Yep. <laughs> a liberal is a man or a woman who is interested in having people enjoy the greatest reasonable amount of liberty, and this regardless of the juridical type of government they are living under. It is true that the affinities between liberty and the various political forms are not identical. It is also true that while some political establishments show marked liberal trends, they harbor nevertheless through their dialectics the danger of far-reaching enslavement. The fact remains that the true liberal is not pledged to any specific constitution, but would subordinate his choice to the desire to see himself and his fellow citizens enjoying a maximum of liberty. If he thinks that a monarch would grant greater liberty than a republic, he would choose the former. Under certain circumstances, he might even prefer the actual restrictions of a military dictatorship to the potential evolutions of a democracy. This reminds me of uh, Machiavelli's point about how he was uh, in the print. I think it was a print maybe with the discourses. He wrote how um, republics are the goal, but not every every place is not, not every location is like morally ready for the responsibilities of a republic. And sometimes you need a dictatorship to break them or build them into the position to actually have a republic. And the republics are good, but they are not just because the republics are good does not mean they're universally good in every situation. Right, and as we'll see uh, eventually, I think you know um, there's plenty of arguments that even republics are not the are not the ultimate uh, yeah. good that it might be claimed to be. Is that, yeah. and and there is very much a cultural aspect, and he doesn't get into this so much in here, but there's certainly a cultural aspect where like you know, sometimes you need the restrictions of a military dictatorship to to maintain a higher standard of liberty. Yeah, I think I mean currently speaking about today's culture and climate, I would I would I would say we need a military dictator because <laughs> we need we need to stand this kind of step up here and just get the military behind them. 
Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> You're not in Florida. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, they need to expand. Manifest, Florida manifest destiny. That's right. Move north and west at, 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 with all haste. Okay. We need, we need a Monday Napoleon just to keep going. <laughs> Right. Thus, any liberal accepting Plato's evaluation of democracy, uh, citation to the Republic, would reject this form of government because, according to this philosopher, it is fatally doomed to develop into tyranny. In this whole discussion of liberty, it should never be forgotten that the highest liberty, which is at one and the same time inalienable, is aesthetic liberty. I do love the point that like, if you if you read Plato and agree with Plato and you call yourself a liberal, you have to reject democracy. <laughs> Which I mean is, is absolutely true. Like it's it's pretty foolproof logic. I don't think there's any book besides maybe the Bible, and maybe the Prince where the, it gets us the bad vibes of a public. Like I mean, I argued with somebody for like an hour or two. She was trying to say that Repub Plato's Republic was communist. I mean, even Ben Zapio, he said Plato was a communist. And I'm like, I'm sorry, communism to go is to be classless. Plato's whole thing is about the three distinct classes in the aristocracy. Like how the, how the fuck is his his goal is to have three distinct classes? How the fuck is that classless classless like communism? Yeah, it's it such a it, it, it now I, I get so mad. Anyone sees anything authoritarian, they assume it's on the right. They go, "Well, it's communism." I'm like, not not all authoritarianism is communist. There were plenty of authoritarians before they were communists. Yes, <laughs> maybe a couple of good authoritarians. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't even I. I I'm so much happier with uh, with reading Aristotle, who, as far as I'm concerned, mostly corrected any er errors Plato made. Mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm not familiar enough with Plato as I should be, like because I know there's a lot of good there. But I just I read Aristotle's version of it, or, or Aristotle's mm -hmm. Aristotle refinement of most of it, and have been very content. Yeah, yeah I, I've read more Plato than Aristotle mainly because I love Socrates. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm his. What was it? The uh, the Gorgias on co on Coeds. I think it was no Greater Hippias. One 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 on Coeds is one everyone should listen to. He, Plato is just Plato is great because Socrates is great, and that's kind of the <laughs> only reason to read Plato. Fair enough. Fair enough. As anybody with a real knowledge of Europe might expect, the term liberal in its political sense is of Spanish origin. It appears for the first time after 1812 in the Iberian Peninsula and was soon adopted by the French. Sothi, in the Quarterly Review, wrote in 1816 for the first time about British liberales, and 10 years later we see Scott using the expression liberaux. This term was not was used for the radical wing of the Whigs, which is not quite identical to the, with the connotation we attribute to this label. In the United States, a liberal has come to mean a person who welcomes change and thus would not be averse to embracing or fostering a totalitarian ideology. Uh, ideology. Thus, genuine liberals, as, for example, the late Oswald Garrison Billard, in order to distinguish themselves from communist sympathizers, like to call themselves old-fashioned liberals. On the European continent, the situation was not dissimilar. Their liberals often engaged in a veritable persecution of all those who preferred a different scope of views. Professor Carlton J.H. Hayes very adroitly called them uh, sectarian liberals. I'm reminded here about the uh, what classical liberal has sort of been the one that's come into, into vogue because liberal has just the the word has been taken by by uh even in some cases avowed marxists <laughs> yes i think it was um who was it <coughs> at one point i saw um dr wizard wolf call himself like a liberal like a while back and i was like what well, i thought he was a marxist it's just i, I blame dave rubin for calling himself a classical liberal and i blame all the jordan peterson fanboys like i have a friend 
You ever talk to a guy and within five minutes of talking to me, you know he only watches Jordan Peterson videos? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think um, I know the type, yeah. Yeah. Like, like, Jordan Peterson has some great points, but he's, he's never be your end-all, be-all, because he's not as great as you think he is. And um, I blame him and uh, Dave Rubin for going to hope, like, what is classically, what is the classical liberals? And it's like, what is, what do you, what the fuck do you think that means? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, do you, what does that mean? It's, it's like, great example, Eric Weinstein, the the absolute worst of the worst in public intellectual discourses, calls himself a classical liberal. And that guy is just the absolute worst. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's so boring. He's like, like we gotta, guys, we gotta go to Mars. The US is done. We can't fix it. I'm like, well, do you know why the US is bad? There's lots of reasons. Like, well, can he fix them before we leave? Like, no, I was like, well, how are you gonna not let them happen again on the new place? Well, we'll figure it out then. I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Stop it. <laughs> so I, I think uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I think you're you're really sort of acting against your own best interest here. Remember, our, our goal is to make you the first bishop of Mars, Caleb. That's right. That was why I, I need to become the first bishop of Mars because I can become patron saint of space travel. And that would be, be one, would be one neat, you know. Well, well, sainthood will work on that. That's that's a that's a bigger, longer term goal. I wanted to, let's, let's get you let's get you the bishopric of Mars first. Come on, Elon, take me to Mars. Moving on, the philosophical and psychological motives for the liberal position show a great variety. The driving force in a Christian liberalism will always be affection and generosity. Yet we also know of a liberalism derived from a basic philosophical nihilism, which declares that truth is either a mere prejudice, a piece of intellectual arrogance, a sensory fraud, or that it is humanly unattainable outside the reach of the faculty of reason. It is obvious that such a philosophy of despair, which we reject, does not necessarily result in a liberal attitude. It may wind up in its opposite, and the type of its evolution thus depend merely on the personal preference or temperament. I do want to say here, because I, I think similar to the point that I, that I brought up earlier about how he was noting that liberty is, a, is an intermediate end, I think there's there's a lot of, of attempts at sort of allyship between these two views of you know, sort of this, this Christian liberalism where like, hey, we, we, we serve truth, we want truth, liberalism or liberty is a good approach to getting to truth. And, and the sort of more nihilistic aspect, uh, the, the, the sort of more, the more nihilistic liberals, um, and I think yeah. it's it's hard to work together. <laughs> I, I I think you, that that is such a fundamental divide in, th in in thinking. It's so hard to try and get any kind of of cohesive work done because they want they want liberty for such different reasons. Yeah. Speaking of uh, liberty and Christianity, I think we might be publishing soon in a, a very long episode in two parts that our own um, Andrew from Popular Liberty did with uh, my friend um, Jacob Daniel of a biblical anarchy. They did an episode on Christianity and liberalism. And I think we might be publishing that soon. So that'd be, uh, be interesting. I want to look forward to that. I like both their stuff. I need to, I need mm -hmm. to catch up with, with Jacob at some point. He needs to get back on our, in our, uh, in our chats and bug us. I miss those days. He, yeah, he, I miss Jacob. He needs a, uh, he also needs to convert. That's another one. I'm going to, uh, Jacob, if you listen to this, Jacob, by year's end, I'm going to get you into Catholic church. Okay. <laughs> year's end. I give him several time limit on this one. <laughs> I will, I will we, 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 we will get to in a, in a moment we'll get to some notes on trying to trying to coerce conversion but we'll uh, we'll save that for a, for a moment from now yeah there is another possible motive which can be harmonized with the christian position namely the conviction that illiberalism is bad strategy 
while fully accepting the distinction between truth and untruth, and even acknowledging the tenet that untruth has no intrinsic right or claim for toleration, the strategic liberal will reject coercive measures simply because they do not lead to the desired result. For instance, it has been suggested that the Middle Ages died of a sort of uremic poisoning because of the practical impossibility of an individual seceding from the church. The strongly coercive tendency which crept into the late medieval church, partly as a result of the invitation by the state, took a couple of centuries to subside. Already in 1818, Pius VII found strong words against the coercive principle and the code of canon law is explicit on the point that nobody, i.e. no adult, can be forced to become a Catholic. It must be admitted that during the Middle Ages, the lower clergy were rather confused on this point. Note the frequent instance, insistence that Jews forcibly baptized were subject to the jurisdiction of the church. Nevertheless, it could only be a question of time until the full impact of Catholic theology could be felt on the problem with force and coercion. Not only did the Catholic teaching of the supremacy of conscience over all visible authority uh, militate against the late medieval policy, but, also, but so also did the precepts of charity. Thus, when handing over a person found guilty to the secular authorities, the inquisitors uttered a standard form formula asking the state not to subject the culprit to capital punishment. We cast thee out from our ecclesiastical court and give thee over, or rather leave thee to the secular arm and the power of the secular court. Efficaciously entreating said secular court that it temper its sentence close to and on this side of the shedding of blood and the peril of death. Like that. That's good. So as, as a reminder, Caleb, don't try and forcibly convert people to Catholicism. Well, <laughs> Pius VII I'll, has found strong words against it. I'll, I'll put the sword back in its sheath and we'll wait till later. <laughs> okay. Uh, these changes of attitude, on the other hand, have nothing to do with the adamant insistence of the infallibility of the teaching church in dogmatic matters. Today, the possibility of an honest, tragic conflict between conscience and truth is fully admitted. It was bad psychology, not bad philosophy, which imputed bad faith to every heretic or dissenter. And I think uh, this is, uh, I think, a, a rather beautiful point is that when you find heresies or, you know, Protestants or... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, people who are doing things that, that have objectively bad consequences. Um, there was a time when sort of the assumption was this person is evil. And there is, I think, uh, the, that, the fuller truth that there, there's not a, I, th I think, I don't think it's non-existent, but it is very, very rarely is there, are there evil wills? Like usually there are, there are wrong intellects. There are, yeah. there are wrong minds, wrong ideas. Um, rather than there are genuinely evil will is people yeah. people are acting towards what they think is the good and and, and is, therefore and therefore can be can be educated can be corrected can be admonished um and aren't are, and aren't demons that need to be slain or put down this is one of the points of um like i was reading uh the Thomistic stuff on human accent um mm -hmm. and it's like all human accent is uh, ordered towards a perceived good which is the same thing mises says about human accent mm -hmm. um uh, and so it's again, there's very few, very rarely do you see someone who is acting for perceived evil. You know, even when someone, even when someone harms themselves or commits suicide, they are doing it in perceived good that they are um, better off not being here. Mm -hmm. And so it's very rarely do you find someone who is doing evil for the sake of doing evil because they want to do evil. Right. And then, and even that's a particularly interesting case where, like, okay, like you know, you you are justified in trying to into forcibly stopping this person from killing themselves. But you do that so that you can then try and help them understand that what they're doing is not good. You know, the, the ultimate yeah. goal is to help the person realize that what they're doing is 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 
one of the most evil things. You, like, yeah, one of the most evil things you can possibly do. The good and the good in stopping the suicide isn't stopping the um, it's the, isn't stopping the actions so they can just not do it. It's stopping the actions so they can, you can educate them to why they shouldn't do it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, yeah. In this connection, it must also be borne in mind that true liberalism is hardly compatible with an unlimited capitalism of the Manchester School. Property is also <laughs> a means of freedom. Since private capitalism tends to concentrate property in fewer and fewer hands, it is, from a genuinely liberal point of view, only a lesser evil in comparison with state capitalism, which we call socialism. For the truly liberal solution of the problem of production, we have to look to other prophets than Smith and Stalin. <laughs> Yeah, so I like that part specifically about um, property. Also, means that here it is. Um, since private capital tends to concentrate power in a few and fewer hands, I mean, power centralizes in the same way. Uh, I think Rothbard said in um, uh, "What is government into our money?" That when you have competing currencies, it always ends up centralizing the one currency that's better than the rest because money is power. And the same way power centralizes, in the same way pro uh, property centralizes in few and fewer hands. It's one of the things thing when libertarians hold up decentralization as a goal. It's like, well, that's only a short-term thing. I don't think you can actually maintain decentralization forever or even really a super long. I don't think you'd maintain it for maybe more than a year or two before it's going to start centralizing slower and slower until it's back to where we started. Or if not, if not centralizing per se, it's only going to be accumulating, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you'd have to, you have to have some mechanism to say, okay, no matter how much no matter how much wealth or property or power you accrue, it is somehow remains limited in its scope of what it can do. Is somehow, somehow that power can, can't act outside the market, yeah. which, which is which is sort of a fallacy. I mean, it's, it, it, unless there is some more powerful body that can limit power in that way, power is going to be able to leak outside of whatever confines you try and put around it. Nah, man, the people are gonna love it so much they disagree not to do that anymore. <laughs> For a large number of people, that could be true, but it isn't, it's it's not the the large number of people that are going to be the issue. Yeah, is, and and I think he starts getting into this. I don't know if it's in this chapter or it's in chapter two, but starts talking about again similar to Hoppe. Like I can, you can see a lot of, um, and based on the chronology, I think a lot of a lot of him ends up in Hoppe. Yeah, um, but but talks about you know natural natural aristocracies and and you know that there is there is a role for the elite where this power can accumulate and and what needs to be done with them and how they should function. If anyone wants to actually read more on like um, on elites and like that kind of stuff, I work with Plutarch on his uh, how to be a how to be a wise leader. He talks about the the role of the uh, politician. The, like, one of the great things about ancient Greece and the, the politicians were also kind of with people who had to pay for things. Like if you got into power in the politics, you're also going to be spending your money putting on most of these things you were like trying to get done. Like if you wanted to build, if say some politicians in ancient Greece wanted to build a new um say uh, what's the one i'm looking for like pantheon or something mm -hmm. uh they had to pay for it if they want to put on a fair they had to pay for it and so like the mechanism for maintaining the, like making sure the people in power were the ones who had the money to be in power also it makes sure they were the ones who wanted to spend money on the people mm -hmm. and so it was, a, it was a good like self-correcting mechanism having the the participants pay for it themselves and this is i think um canola did makes this point in monarchy and war that you know wars were financed personally by the monarch and so you didn't like casualties were incredibly costly. You didn't want like, you know, you'd, you'd rather have the army sort of, you know, maneuver and surrender very quickly so that you didn't have these huge body counts that cost a lot of money if you were paying for it. Yeah. Once you have, once you have conscription, once you have, you know, the, the democracy where you can just, you know, you have cannon fodder that you no longer bear that cost anymore. Yeah. Uh, the terms democracy and democratic are political. Democracy implies power, rule of the people. 
The various sociological and social misuses of these expressions do not interest us here. We have, for example, to place a label like the democ democratic way of life in that category. Mere affection for the lower classes is not democracy, but demophily. The reader is thus solemnly warned that we are dealing with a political concept only. And the again, this is one of those things that sort of gone out of control, talking about the democratic way of life or talking about, you know, liberal or, or um, yeah, when, when we're doing nation building, wherever and we talk about, you know, a modern democracy, democracy is not has nothing to do with it. It is very much about a, a, an ideology or, or a or a social sociological position and has very little to do with what democracy actually means. I appreciate that he's trying to, he's, when he says democracy, he means democracy. Yes. He's, I love, I, I do, I, I gotta say, we talked talk about it earlier, but I'm gonna say it again. I love how precise he is being with all his words. I mean, it's, who would, who would ever devote a chapter to the definitions of the words they're using, but it's so perfect. And, and, and you know, it's, and it's not just, I, what I appreciate is that, yes, it's a, it's a chapter on definitions and how he's using terms, but it's not, it's not as dry as it could be. Like it's, it's, it doesn't feel like we're reading a dictionary. Like he is going into some detail. He's giving context. It's, it's leading the way towards what he's, what he's going to say yeah. while he's just taking the time to just define his terms very well. So I think it's, and he, he writes well. I, I, I know English is probably like his like sixth or seventh language, but, and, and I know he had an editor, but uh, it, it works very well. And I can't, I can't imagine that it's, you know, reading Maritain, you say, okay, this probably works better than the original French. I don't get the feeling reading Knut Holden that this would really be better if we were reading it in German. Like this, he just he he, he writes well in English. And again, it's, you were saying I think I think this was before we started, but you were saying he spoke he spoke Japanese. Like he he spoke like he spoke wrote and was fluent in tons of languages. Yeah, yeah. I would I, I need someone who listening to this to Photoshop uh, Eric von Knut Holden in a Komodo holding an anime <laughs> body pillow. I need that photo. I need to leave my profile pic for a month. I'm gonna go with uh, the Austrian weeb. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I need someone to make that for me. <laughs> Too perfect. Oh, yeah. There is a classic concept of democracy, which lasted with minor variations from 500 BC until the middle of the last century. Some people still cling to the classic sense of the term because it alone has a modicum of concise, conciseness and, clear, and clearness. Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas, St. Robert Bellarmine, uh, Father Mariana, S.J. SJ, uh, Society of Jesus, Alexander Hamilton, Marshall, Madison, Governor Morris, Fustel de Colliers, all vaguely agreed on the content of the term democracy. There does seem to have been, some, been among some of the American founding fathers a tendency to identify democracy rigorously with one of its manifestations, direct democracy, a limitation for, of the term for which Rousseau might have, been, might have to be held responsible. This is evident when we read Madison's definition of democracy in the Federalists, numbers 10 and 14, or John Adams' attack on democracy in his defense of the Constitution of the United States of America. Yet the case of John Adams is not entirely clear. A more complete perusal of his writings gives evidence of a strong opposition to the egalitarian principle. And we also know that he had qualms of conscience for having embedded the American Revolution insofar as it was the forerunner of the French Revolution and its sanguinary aftermath. Alexander Hamilton vehemently criticized democracy in his speeches on June 21st, 1788, on the Compromise of the Constitution, and in the Federal Convention on June 26, 1787. In fact, Governor Morris ascribed Hamilton's opposition to republicanism to his confusion of republicanism with democracy. There should be no doubt whatever that the vast majority of the founding fathers not only detested and opposed direct democracy, but as strict republicans, were also deeply critical of most of the principles of indirect democracy. 
and here we have the introduction of the we live in a republic not a democracy crowd and then their their autistic shrieking now i've always hated that line like someone's like we live in a republic not a democracy i'm like the republic is a democracy in a cheap dress uh, it's a cheap lipstick and a 12 dollar dress it is a prostitute that's what it is it's it's, it's it's ridiculous and it is quite literally a democracy even if it's not a direct democracy yeah. Thomas Jefferson almost often is often glibly called a Democrat and the founder of Jeffersonian democracy as opposed to Jacksonian democracy. Yet when we analyze the contents of democracy in its direct as well as its indirect form, we must come to the conclusion that his stand was not democratic at all. Dr. Mortimer Adler quite rightly rejects Jefferson as a Democrat and insists that the dawn of American democracy really begins with Jackson. What then are the precepts of democracy? It has only two postulates legal and political equality, franchise for all, and self-government based on the rule of the majority of equals. Depending on the manner of exercise of this self-government by the whole populace or by representatives, we speak of direct or indirect democracy. It is also obvious that the representatives in an indirect democracy have the duty of repeating the views of the electorate. In the opposite case, we have a republic rather than democracy. The respective minorities, moreover, the freedom of speech, the limitations imposed upon the rule of majorities, have nothing to do with democracy as such. These are liberal tenets. They may or may not be present in a democracy. Jefferson actually was an agrarian romantic who dreamt of a republic governed by an elite of character and intellect and based on the support of a free yeomanry. This is evident when he writes in a letter to John Adams dated October 28th, 1814. The natural aristocracy I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trusts, and government of society. And indeed, it would have been inconsistent in creation to have formed men for the social state and not to have provided virtue and wisdom enough to manage the concerns of society. May we not even say that that, that form of government is the best, which provides most effectually for a pure selection of these natural aristoi into the offices of government. I gotta say, Thomas Jefferson had some. Like, I've read some of his letters; they are almost off of this bangers. Like, he had some great letters. He write. Yeah, no, he's, and I think we we'll get into a little more in a second here because he's he's very a very complicated thinker. And and I've, I think I was, I was listening to some Tom Woods thing recently where he was talking about Jefferson, and he really is on both sides of, of, of what we would call a lot of modern arguments or arguments of the day. Yeah, but is just a very clear thinker and very clear writer, and just and and expresses I, I, things very well. I saw his uh, personal library in D.C. and he had an insane amount of books, like all of Plato, Aristotle, like the C. Thomas, C. Thomas More. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite letters he had. He had a point like, um, um, does the uh, does the does the world not belong to the living? How can we create a system from now that the, the dead have um, the dead have bearing over the living later? Mm -hmm. Like I think that's a, that's a good question. It's kind of like, yeah, what belongs to the living? Does the living have, have a right to recreate? Like, how far can the living claim to the world go into recreating everything they see before them? And how what's swayed and traditions of the past have on the next generation? Like, mm -hmm. it's a good question to ask. He doesn't answer it. He got to ask it and moves on to personal questions about the guy he's talking to. But no, I, mean, I think what his idea is also like every every law should be repealed after like nineteen. Like every, basically every generation, all the laws should go away. So people can make new ones. We've gone for almost an hour. Let's finish up this page, and then we'll have to come back for finish another part uh, later because it's almost an hour. We're not even like seven. We're barely eight pages in, and we're an hour in. I'm I'm, I'm going too slow. I need to speed read. Sorry. So good. There's All so right, much so, comment on. You know. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll keep going. You tell me when to stop. 
And in another page of the same letter, he adds, everyone by his property or by his satisfactory situation is interested in the support of law and order. And such men may safely and advantageously reserve to themselves wholesome control over their public affairs and a degree of freedom, which in the hands of the, of the Caneo of the cities of Europe would be instantly perverted to the demolition and destruction of everything public. His rejection of an urban proletariat was so outspoken that it is difficult to see how he could have been, how he could have been elevated even temporarily to the August position of patron saint of the common man. He wrote, for instance, the mobs of great cities add just so much to the support of pure government as sores due to the strength of the human body. I consider the class of artificers as the panders of vice and the instruments by which the liberties of a country are generally overturned. In his later age, his views mellowed somewhat, but he seems to have opposed female suffrage at all times, based. His agrarianism never subsided, although it found its most concrete expression in his younger years. In that spirit, he wrote to Madison a letter dated December 20th, 1787. I think that our governments will remain virtuous for many centuries, as long as they are chiefly agricultural, and this will be as long as there are vacant lands in any part of America. When they get piled upon one another, as in the large cities of Europe, they will become corrupt, as in Europe. That is a great quote. <laughs> That's a and, it's fantastic. And quite prescient, I think, too. I mean, it, it, it really... It's it's not until the sort of um, agrarian age of America ends that we really start seeing serious corruption and the growth of cities, because I mean there certainly are still vacant lands here, but so much of it is is owned. Like there is very you can't go homestead very many places. You can't go. There's not there is no frontier anymore. This um, this whole little bit here reminds me of a, uh, for lack of a better word, a no no book I've been reading lately um, from some guy who was a <clears throat> in charge of agriculture in some country during World War II. <laughs> um, if, you, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, you know. If you don't know, you just find out and read it because it's actually been a really good read. Well, yeah, so, you're going to you're gonna have to do You might have to do that one solo when you do it for the book club. But uh, I, I would love to cover this. I'm reading so many books now. I'm like, I'm never going to be able to cover this one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't cover that. How Pete covers Yaki is beyond me. Fair I'd, enough. I'd, I'd be scared to cover Yaki. <laughs> okay. Um. We've got like three pages left. Do you just want to try and push through? Let's try to push through. Okay, great. Okay. The expressions Democrat and democracy hardly occur in the Monticello edition of Jefferson's works. In a letter addressed to Washington on May 17, 1792, he called himself a Republican Federalist, and in his first inaugural address, he insisted that he was a Federalist and a Republican. When Andrew Jackson ran against John Quincy Adams for the presidency in 1828, he was called by some of his supporters a Democratic Republican, since both candidates used the Republican label. Van Buren prided himself on being a Republican, but the term Democratic was again used by uh, was again used by Pierce in 1852. Yet the founder of American democracy undoubtedly remains Andrew Jackson, whose monument in Washington is in front of the White House, surrounded by the statues of four European noblemen who fought in America for liberty, but not for equality or majority or majority rule. Uh, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, Baron von Steuben, the Marquis de Lafayette, and the Comte de Rochambeau. Marquis de Lafayette is one of my favorite historical figures when it comes to like, the American Revolution. I do had so many amazing moments. The 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 French role in the revolution is always very fun, very fun. I mean, at, at one point, apparently, he didn't, he didn't speak any English, and so like, he or very little English, and so he would like rally the troops by running at him on a horse and just screaming at him in rapid fire like French, and they had no idea what he was saying, so they kind of just followed him in the battle. Whatever <laughs> works. Yeah. Uh, Pulaski and Baron de Kalb have their representations in stone elsewhere. 
Those who want to avoid confusion and insist on clarity in political thinking by carefully trying to distinguish between liberalism and democracy and between democracy and republicanism are probably fighting a losing battle. <laughs> Lost battle at this point. Yep. Most people are not usually aware of the fact that one of the most important differences between the continental and the Anglo-Saxon tradition of representative government has to be found in the important ally, which has been so far the almost insensible committent of the latter, Whiggery, or liberalism in the classic <laughs> sense. The names and works of the 19th and 20th century thinkers who have carefully distinguished between democracy and liberalism will be found in the next chapter, uh, note 58. But the vast majority of Americans and Englishmen talking about democracy always include the liberal element in their conception of democracy. And this in spite of the fact that democracy and liberalism are concerned with two entirely different problems. The former is concerned with the question of who should be best with ruling authority, while the latter deals with the freedom of the individual, regardless of who carries on the government. A democracy can be highly illiberal. The Volstead Act, quite democratically voted for, interfered with the dinner menus of millions of citizens. Fascism, national and international socialism repeatedly insisted that they were in essence democratic, a claim which much must be viewed in a strict philosophical and historical setting, and in this view becomes less hypocritical than observers in the Western Hemisphere are wont to admit. The Soviet use of the democratic label is by no means a shrewd political maneuver of recent years, but a terminology already adopted by Lenin and continued by Stalin throughout the 1920s. If we accept St. Thomas's definition of democracy, de regime principum 1-1, uh, we will find that the dictatorship of the proletariat, provided the proletariat forms a majority, is more democratic than the American Constitution, in which, in contrast to the sacred books of communism, the word democracy never figures. I think this is this is an excellent point in getting into a lot of the subject of matter of the book is that again when people say democracy what they mean is liberal democracy and liberal democracy th those two words don't necessarily go together and indeed as he's going to show and as as you know hoppa sort of um uh screamed uh from the rooftops really don't properly go together yeah on the other hand, we can imagine an absolute ruler, an autocratic emperor, for instance, who is a thoroughgoing liberal, although it is obvious that he cannot be democratic in the political sense. 51% of a nation can establish a totalitarian regime, suppress minorities, and still remain democratic. While an old-fashioned dictator might reserve to himself only a few prerogatives, scrupulously refraining from interfering in the private sphere of the citizens. There is little doubt that the American Congress or the French chambers have a power over their nations, which would rouse the envy of a Louis XIV or a George III were they alive today. I want to say real quick, the first point about 51%, that's a 51% can have the totalitarian regime and suppress minorities to remain democratic. That's a point a lot of anarchists make today. They don't ever really make the flip side point. My old dictator might reserve themselves only a few prerogatives, scrupulously refrain from interfering with private spheres. They never make that flip side point, you know? Yeah, it's... Which is interesting because they'll point out so often like sort of the the anarchic nature of say something like medieval Europe, where you had you know a lot of different principalities and and kingdoms and and uh, baronies and whatever else that were that you know had a, a pretty you know code of, that, that were had no power over each other, but in each of their individual areas you know they were an absolute monarch, but they were very liberal in this sense is that there wasn't a lot that they did or could do to their to their uh, to their citizens, and this is a sort of a, a lost point that you can you can have rulers that that have absolute authority or a lot of authority that can't really exercise it in a liberal way for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's a good point. Yeah, it's, um, good. It's, it's great. 
not only prohibition, but also the income tax declaration, selective service, obligatory schooling, the fingerprinting of blameless citizens, permitteral blood tests, uh, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Uh, <laughs> none of these totalitarian measures would, ever, would even the absolute royal absolutism of the 17th century have dared to introduce. After having established the character that. of the difference between democracy and liberalism, we would like to give a few hints as to the plan of this book, which consists of selected chapters on this subject, studies and essays which do not cover the whole ground, but represent an effort to throw some light on various aspects of the problem. The first, Democracy and Totalitarianism, The Prophets, deals with the apprehensions of thinkers and observers who lived between 1790 and 1914 and, in true Platonic fashion, feared the rise of a totalitarian tyranny as an evolution or dialectic process from the very essence of democracy. We have tried to coordinate their views with those of our contemporaries and thus to offer to the reader a sample of the history of ideas. The second, a critique of democracy, which has been previously published in somewhat different form in New Scholasticism, July 1946, deals with the weaknesses and inherent dangers of the democratic doctrine. In this, as well as in the following two, two following essays, our field of investigation is that of political sciences, and our investigation itself is based on a specific philosophy. The third, Democracy and Monarchy, a study in compa comparative government, is a continuation of the second, while the fourth, The Political Temper of Catholic Nations, tries to revise the picture as to the inherent liberalism and our anarchic tendencies of the Catholic nations, as well as to analyze the probability of democracy becoming a going concern in the larger part of Europe. The fact that only 13% of the European continent is Protestant and that Catholicism is also the dominant religion in the Western Hemisphere shows the importance of such research. The next two studies are of historical nature. The fifth, Hus, Luther, and the Na and National Socialism, traces the direct influence of Hus on Mussolini, his Italian interpreter, and on the Czech National Socialists of 1897, and also the influence of Hus on Luther and of Luther on the German National Socialists. His last that's, gonna be, that's gonna be an exciting one, especially considering we just hopped off of a tree from Mauritania and saw Luther influence of Descartes and on Rousseau. I'm very excited to see what you have to say about Luther's influence on on German National Socialists. Same, same. I think that's it's a it's a fascinating connect because the yeah, the, the, I'm sure I'm I'm excited to get into the meat of that whenever whenever it happens. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm I I don't know how many of these you, you want me to come and do, but uh, I'm I'm excited to to read as many as I am. I'm still gonna be be reading along and and keeping up with uh, with all the all the live readings for it because it's wonderful. Yeah, um, and I think we mentioned this earlier. This first chapter is probably the shortest one. There's another you know 200 plus pages, and then 200 pages of notes. I think at the end, <laughs> it's a um, big which we won't need to go into, but yeah. Okay. Uh, the last contribution tries to clear up a most dangerous misunderstanding. It deals with the historical and intellectual background of the Nazi party, and we have given it the title, The Rise of the National Socialist Party. It is based on thorough factual documentation. A slightly condensed version has already appeared in the Journal of the History of Ideas, number uh, 9, number 3, June 1948, page 338 to 71. We conclude with a short summary, pointing out some conclusions from the facts assembled. We leave it to the reader to draw others. And although at present the dice are heavily loaded, only time will tell whether freedom, equality, or perhaps inequality with a new servitude will prevail. And that was the first chapter. We went. It was only eleven pages, and we went for an hour and eleven minutes. <laughs> we we tend to chat too much. I we we, we, we have do. we have too many good things to talk about. But it's, uh... it's, it's, there's so many things to say. I mean, he says like one line, and like, well, I could talk about that for an hour. <laughs> Like it's just there's so much to say. He's an incredible sinker. I'm thank you for coming on. I hope to have you on again soon for uh, more of these live readings or the uh, 
other podcasts, other book clubs, uh, go ahead and give you plugs. Where can people find you at? Sure. So it is uh, at Einkath on Twitter, the anarcho-Catholic, uh, anarcho-Catholic.substack.com for the Substack that I, in theory, still write for. Uh, <laughs> I am a contributor for austriatomism.com. Um, I, I keep have been talking for months now about this article that I've been writing. My uh, my wife has finally been like, "You've been talking about this article for on podcast for like four months. Just go ahead and finish it." So I'm gonna tell I'll tell you right now, Caleb. I'm going to finish my article on materialism by the end of the month, and have, we'll have it up on the AT because I'm really excited Wonderful. to write it. I think it's I think it's one of the things I've been more excited to write about. Um, but that will be up there. Um, yeah, catch me and uh, and Caleb and the other AT uh, members, writers, contributors on various book clubs. But yeah, that's me. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, again, guys, podcast, uh, the, uh, subscribe to the podcast, hit the like button, or hit the notification bell, share this everywhere. The website is down, and I cannot figure out why or how to get it back up. I will probably just spend my Saturday on tech support with some Indian dude trying to fix it. Um, uh, we have articles from Connor Mortel coming out soon. Hopefully, Louise gets the article about uh, divorce being a like, simulacrum or something. I'm very excited to get that one. Uh, a lot of great podcasts coming out, a lot of big guests. Um, this is going to be a big year. Make sure you subscribe because you don't want to miss any of it. And with that, uh, have a good night.